Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In our sermon series, Trending, we are talking about trending topics within our news media that really strike a chord with people in their hearts. The way we follow news media in our world today is by how many people are reading and sharing about a particular topic on social media. I'll be picking up on these trending topics and pulling them out to discuss how God's Spirit is operating through these events in our world. I hope you enjoy. Uh, Our first scripture comes to us from Genesis chapter 24, verses 34 through 38, and verses 42 through 49. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become wealthy. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female slaves, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live. But you shall go to my father's house, to my kindred, and get a wife for my son. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will only make successful the way I am going. I am standing here by the spring of water. Let the young woman who comes out to draw, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebekah, coming out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink and I will also water your camels. So I drank, and she also watered my camels. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to obtain the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you will deal loyally and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me so that I may turn either to the right hand or to the left. The word of the Lord. You all don't sound nearly excited enough to be reading these old Genesis texts. They're long stories, aren't they? All right, we're going to continue with this. It's a little bit, uh, little bit more here, but then we'll be finished with it. Uh, and they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will. So they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse along with Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of myriads. May your offspring gain possession of the gates of their foes. Then Rebekah and her maids rose up, mounted the camels, and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac 
had come from Berlaharoi and was settled in the Negev. Isaac went out in the evening to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. And Rebekah looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she slipped quickly from the camel and said to the servant, Who is the man over there walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we are coming down to some of the final sermons in this series, including today. I only have three left to preach with this, and then you have one from TC, one from Judy, but we're coming to the end of the series. And so we've been doing this series trending. Each week we look at various topics that are trending in social media. And we're asking the question, what does God's Spirit have to say to us about these topics that are impacting our lives? But before we get into our topics, we always look at the Scripture first. And our Scripture today, which was rather lengthy, thank you for sitting through it, it is about when Isaac and Rebekah, when they become husband and wife. This story is pretty straightforward. There's not a whole lot to it. But I want to give you a little bit of background so that you can appreciate some of the cultural issues that are at play here. So Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. As you can see from up here, Ishmael and Isaac, they have two different mothers. So Ishmael, his mother is Hagar, and she was a maidservant in Abraham's household. The situation was that Sarah could not get pregnant, so she goes to Abraham and says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sleep with my maidservant Hagar so that you can have a son somebody to inherit your wealth. So that happens, and then a couple years later, Sarah does get pregnant, and she gives birth to Isaac. Now, shortly after giving birth to Isaac, she banishes Ishmael and Hagar into the wilderness. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that, because she only wants there to be one heir, and that is to be Isaac. So <clears throat> a number of years after this, Sarah dies. She passes away. And this is when Abraham decides, you know what? Maybe this would be a good time to get a wife for Isaac. <clears throat> but he's facing a very difficult situation because he lives among a people known as the Canaanites. And so this is not his tribe. It's not his family. And so he decides, you know what? What we're going to do is we're going to go out and we're going to find a wife from my family for Isaac. So he tells his servant, go out, I want you to find him because I might not live long enough and I don't want him marrying one of these Canaanite women. So the servant goes out, as we saw, he goes to the land of Abraham's ancestors, he gets to this well, and he's sitting there, and he's just waiting for somebody to come out. And just so happens the first person to come out is Rebecca. Rebecca is Abraham's brother's daughter. Now she has no idea who this guy is. She walks up and she says, can I give you a drink of water? which was very nice. And then she says, I'd be happy, by the way, to water your camels for you, which was a big deal because camels drink a lot of water. So she does this, and this is a sign to the servant that <clears throat> this woman is to be Isaac's wife. Now, in repayment for this kindness, he gives her a bracelet <clears throat> and a gold nose ring. So if you parents out there, if you're having a debate with your daughters over whether or not they can have a nose ring. It is biblical, by the way. 
they can. But if they're going to go all the way with it, you have to make it biblical. Because the nose rings that they got back in those days, those were not the little studs that you get in your nose right here, right? Those are like, they were like big cattle nose rings, like the ones down there. So they got to go the whole way with it if they're going to claim that the Bible is going to allow them to get a nose ring, okay? I digress, but I just want you to know that, okay, for the future. So she invites him back to her house, and that's where he says, hey, why don't you let Rebecca come with me, and she will become Isaac's wife. Now, this is an arranged marriage, which is rather foreign to us. And Rebecca, she will be given a choice as to whether or not she wants to marry Isaac. But the fact is, in the ancient world, women were often given very little, if any, say over the men who they were going to marry. In our modern world, particularly here in America, where women are given equal rights and they're expected to determine their own romantic relationships, this can feel a little bit jarring to us, this idea of a woman just getting thrown into marriage like this. But you have to appreciate the circumstances of women in the ancient world. So the average age of marriage back then was around 12 years old. Now that might sound very young, but when you're only living to be about 30, 12 years old is about half your life. So I think we can all agree, at 12, are you in the best position to be determining who your husband should be? No, you're not. And that's why your parents would do most of the legwork for you. They would go out, they would find you a husband. And this is important because in our world, I mean, what's the average age of women who get married today? They're in their, what, mid-20s? So if that's what you're thinking of Rebecca as, you need to revise that. She's probably only 12 or 13 years old. And you also have to understand that in the ancient world, there's a couple different reasons why they had arranged marriages. One is because of what we just talked about here, lifespan limitations. But two, they were trying to keep a clean lineage, meaning they only wanted their children to marry within their own tribe. Now, one of the reasons why they want to do this is to keep the wealth within the family. Because if you marry outside of the tribe, right, then all of a sudden your wealth starts to spread out among all these other people groups. So this way it keeps the wealth concentrated. But there's another reason why this happens too. And the fact is that we, as human beings, we have this tradition where we like to marry people who look like us. In fact, it's not just an ancient tradition. It's something that happens up to this day. In 2010, there's a Pew Research study that asked the question, how many people in America have married somebody of the same ethnicity? And what they found was white people marry white people 91% of the time. African Americans marry African Americans 84% of the time. Hispanics marry Hispanics 74% of the time. And Asians marry Asians 69% of the time. So what this shows us is that we as human beings, we have this propensity to want to marry people who look and act like we do. And so the question, or the theme that I want to talk about this morning is, why do we have this propensity? Why is it that we tend to marry people of our own ethnicity? Is it biological? Is it psychological? Is it social, cultural? And why is it that some people are willing to break out of this mold and marry people who are from different ethnicities. So, we begin in the place where most people would begin this type of discussion, 
which is with biology. So if we go back about 150 years to the beginning of modern science, what you find is that many of these early scientists believe that the reason why we are attracted to people of the same ethnicity is because it's built into our genes. That's what they said. They said that you are going to naturally, naturally be attracted to people who look like you. And in fact, they went so far as to say that if you were attracted to and ended up being with someone other than someone of your race, that you were actually flawed. There was something wrong with you because you were diluting your gene pool. This science, this branch of science, became known as eugenics. Eugenics comes from two Greek words, eu and genos, meaning well-born. And at the turn of the 19, or the 1900s, the turn of the 20th century, this was actually taught in universities all over the world. And the idea was these scientists were teaching you how to create stronger gene pools among people. Now, this concept of eugenics was actually really, really important for the Nazi doctrine of ethnic cleansing in the late 1930s and early 1940s. And so eugenics actually has with it this very racist and racial component. And in fact, some of you in here, if you're old enough, you may have even been taught this in school because eugenics was taught up until the 1950s. Now, past the 1950s, once you get to the 1960s, people realize actually eugenics is total garbage. And the fact is that we do not determine our mates on the basis of our DNA. It's very, very little gets placed on our DNA in that regard. In fact, it comes down mostly to psychological, cultural, and social components of our upbringing. Let's start with psychology because that's actually the most important when it comes to choosing mates. So neuroscientists over the last 20 years, they've been doing a lot of work in the area of how our brains determine how we interact with the world. And what they've determined is that we create these maps in our brains when we're young that get overlaid on us. And these maps are very important for us to understand and interact with the world. Let me give you an example. So one map that you determine when you are young is recognizing faces and emotions. That's a map that gets overlaid on your brain. And this allows you to interact with people socially, right? Because if you can see how they're reacting, whether they're happy, sad, whether they're out there and they're joyful or they're angry, this allows you to interact with people socially. People who have autism or are on the autistic spectrum, they lack this map in their brain. And so they can't see or understand emotions in the same way, which is why when you have autism or you're on the autistic spectrum, you tend to have trouble interacting socially. Another example of this would be with letters or language. These are maps that get overlaid. But for our purposes today, the map that we're concerned with would be our arousal template. Now, the arousal template is what determines who you're attracted to. The arousal template comes with some set features when you are born, such as whether you are heterosexual or homosexual. This is determined by your DNA, but also, scientists have discovered, by the amount of testosterone inside of the uterus during pregnancy. Now, beyond these set features, what we find is that the arousal template is imprinted between the ages of 6 and 10. And this happens mostly because of our cultural and social 
upbringing. So what you experience in your environment, that is actually what determines how your arousal template is imprinted. Let me give you an example so you understand where I'm going with this. So let's say, just for instance, let's say you're a white person, you live in the Midwest in the early 1900s in a rural farming community. All right, so if that's how you're growing up, between the ages of six and 10, the vast majority of people who you're gonna be interacting with are people who look and talk and act exactly like you. And so your arousal template is going to be imprinted with being aroused by people who are white and from the Midwest. Those are the people you're gonna be attracted to. Now you take that same person, you pluck them up, you fast forward 100 years and you put them in an urban environment like Los Angeles. And now they're in Los Angeles, they're interacting with people of all kinds of different ethnicities and all of a sudden, it changes the outcome of the arousal template. It's very, very different. Now, assuming that these interactions are positive, what you find is that the arousal template becomes a lot more varied because you've had interactions with all kinds of other people. And so what this means is that you are actually willing to mate with people outside of your ethnicity. And so what this tells us is that our social and our cultural upbringing, it plays a huge role in the people to whom we're attracted. If you interact with a lot of people who are diverse in their ethnicity, then your arousal template's gonna be much more broad. But if you interact with people who only look and act like you, then your arousal template is gonna be much more narrow. And this is essentially what's happening in the book of Genesis this morning. So Abraham, right, he's dealing with his own family. Those are the people who he knows. Those are the only people who he trusts. And so when he's trying to find a wife for his son, he thinks, I'm going to my tribe, my family. And who does Isaac end up marrying? He ends up marrying his brother's daughter, right? You can't get much narrower than that. That's your first cousin, right? <laughs> so if we look at this story, we see this as kind of a baseline. It's the beginning of everything because this story dates back about 3,500 years to about 1500 BC. So that's, we assume that's kind of the beginning of everything. Now, these cultures, these cultures of nomadic tribes, clearly what we can tell from the scriptures is they're very insular, right? And they're so insular to the point that sometimes you only marry people from your own family. But, then the culture starts to shift and change, and you can actually see this happen in the Bible. As the tribes of Abraham transform into the kingdom of Israel, all of a sudden, now these Israelites, they're interacting with cultures from all over the Middle East, and they start interacting with them, and they start intermarrying with them. And so they're much more open. And so if you look in the Bible, you can see from about 1100 to 600 BC, that's when they're very open to this idea of we can mate with people outside our ethnicity. But then something happens around 600 BC. These foreign nations come in and they start to absolutely decimate and destroy the Israelite people. And so as a result of this, all this violence, all this death, and their culture's about to leave them, right? They don't know what's gonna happen to their culture, so they become insular again. And this is when they create the laws of the Old Testament. And if you read those laws, a lot of things will say, you can only marry somebody from your own tribe, right? 
Or if you go and you talk to somebody outside of your tribe, you become unclean because they don't want you interacting with people beyond the tribe because they want to maintain their heritage and their culture. And this is what we see happening all over the world all the time in cultures everywhere, not just in the Bible, but everywhere. When there is no threat of violence and people are living in relative peace and harmony, then what you find is that people of different ethnicities, they will intermarry all the time. But the moment that your ethnicity becomes the target of another people group, that's when the barriers go up, and that's when you all of a sudden sit there and say, uh-oh, we've got to become insular again because we need to be safe from these other people. And of course, this creates a very negative feedback loop, doesn't it? Because if the whole thing is out of safety, I don't want you interacting with anybody outside of our tribe, well, what does that do to your family? Well, it restricts their mating preferences to mate only with people who are like themselves. Now, if you're wondering, what does this have to do with us? It has a lot to do with us in the sense that here in America, following the Civil War, when slavery was abolished, you saw something interesting happen, which is slavery goes away, but the mentality of racism that allowed for slavery to exist for so long, it persisted. It didn't just go away with slavery all of a sudden. Everybody's like, oh, everything's all good, right? It wasn't like that. The racism was still there. And so it created this deep sense, this deep culture of division. White people only married white people and were antagonistic towards people of color. And people of color only married people of color and were afraid of white people. And so because America had this deep division, this deep racism, this deep sense of segregation, you didn't see people from different ethnicities forming meaningful relationships with one another because it was unsafe. If you were a black man and you went and you started talking to a white woman, you could get lynched, so you weren't going to do that. And of course, as I just told you, if you're not interacting with people who are different from yourself, then what's that going to do? It's going to restrict your mating preference, right? You're not going to want to be with those people. But let's say you buck the trend. Let's say you made a decision, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to go out, I'm going to find somebody who's of a different ethnicity, I'm going to start interacting with them. Even if you fell in love and wanted to get married, you couldn't, because in the United States, most of the states here had laws banning interracial marriage. It just so happens, though, that when I was writing out this sermon, it happened to be the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision of Loving versus Virginia that overturned Virginia's 1924 Racial Integrity Act. Now, let me explain to you what happened. There were two people, Richard Loving, who was white, and Mildred Jeter. Now, these two, they went to Washington, D.C., and they got married, which was legal at that time. Then they went back to their home in Caroline County, Virginia, where it was illegal for them to be married. In July of 1958, they were arrested for violating Virginia's Racial Integrity Act. And then they were put on trial, and they were convicted, and they were given a one-year jail sentence, which was suspended on the condition that they leave Virginia, which they did. So they go out of Virginia, they leave, and a couple years later, 1963, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, they take up their case, and they start to 
try to appeal this ruling, to get it overturned in the courts. And it goes through all these various appeals, and I love this because it works its way up to the Supreme Court, and this is what he says, this is Richard Loving. Tell the court that I love my wife, and that it's just not fair I cannot live with her in Virginia. The Supreme Court hears this case in 1967. And not only do they find in favor of the Lovings, but they end up overturning all state laws that prevent marriage on the basis of race. Now, this was an important moment because this was one of the last major legal hurdles that was still in place, still intact from the Jim Crow era. So thanks to the Lovings, now it didn't matter who you were in the United States, you could marry anybody you wanted to as long as you weren't, I guess at that point, as long as you weren't homosexual. That was the one thing you couldn't do. That's changed recently. So you could marry whoever you wanted and it didn't matter what their race was. So what we see here from all of this is that there's a shift again. Now remember, back in the turn of the Civil War, right? Slavery goes away, does the mentality of racism go away? No, it continues. So they changed this, the law changes. Do you think people were clamoring to all of a sudden have interracial marriages? No, they weren't. It would take our society some time to catch up and take advantage of this particular law that was changed out. And somebody on social media posted something that I thought was really fascinating. This is a graph that talks about a Pew Research study where they asked the question, would you oppose a close family member marrying somebody of a different race? Now, we have data going back, and the data that we have the most on actually is with African Americans. And what you can't really see so clearly there is that in 1990, 64% of people in America said they would oppose their close family member marrying somebody who was African American. Today, that number is 14%. That is a huge shift in our attitudes towards interracial marriage. And what it tells you and what it shows you is how the power of interacting with people who are different from yourself can change your perceptions. And there were many people on social media who were saying that they were the beneficiaries of this ruling. So people were posting these wonderful photographs of their grandparents and their parents. They were showing how this ruling changed their lives, and they also were showing pictures of their own families, people who were saying, you know, we have benefited from this ourselves. And so I think if there's anything that the Spirit is telling me this morning about this scripture and about these social media postings, it's that the only barriers that prevent us from loving each other are the ones that we create for ourselves. Abraham thought he was doing what was right by preventing his son from marrying somebody who was a Canaanite. He only trusted his own family. And you can understand why that's the case. But what we're coming to realize is that that type of insular thinking, it prevents you from experiencing all the beauty that's in the world. There are so many amazing people out there who we simply dismiss because they're different from what we know and prefer. But if you're willing to take a chance, if you're willing 
to get to know these people who are different from yourself, they can transform your perspective on the world. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you might take a chance, that you might be willing to interact with people who are the polar opposite of what you know and prefer. Break out of that bubble that we're all in. We're all guilty of this, by the way, which is that we like to be with the people with whom we're most comfortable, right? But if we break out of that and we work to interact with people who are so very different from us, oh my, it can make such a difference. Because if you're willing to listen to those people, don't dismiss them, give their opinion heed. If you're willing to break down those barriers in your mind, you never know what could happen. Look what happened with Richard Loving and Mildred Jeter. They met each other, they developed a profound love for one another, and I don't think they had any idea what their love would do, how it would transform our country, but it did. And one can only imagine how if we all chose that kind of love, how it could truly make the world a better place. And so I hope that we would be so bold as to choose that love, that our church might be different from the rest of the world, that we would choose people outside of what we know, and that we might try to make the world a reflection of that type of unconditional love. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.